Religion often prevents us from finding and following the real Jesus. That if we want to experience the transforming power of Jesus in our lives, that if we want to experience all of the promises that God gives to us, a religious approach will never allow us to find and follow and experience all that the real Jesus has to offer. So here's what that means. It means if you're here today and you are a non-religious person, but maybe Jesus has been intriguing to you and you've been curious about Jesus, but the thing that has kept you from Jesus is all the religion that tends to surround him, then today's message will be helpful for you. Because you'll be able to find the real Jesus amidst all of the religiosity that tends to surround him. And if you're here and you're from a different religion, maybe somebody invited you, maybe someone sent this message to you and you're trying to understand, well, who is Jesus and how does that relate to my own religious tradition or my own religious belief system? What you're going to find today is that Jesus is different from every religious approach. And for those of us who are faithful followers of Jesus, this message is really important for us. Because when we follow Jesus, one of the benefits, one of the blessings of that is we get to be part of the church. And the church is this incredible institution that is the, the body of Christ, and it's a wonderful thing. But when we're involved in church, sometimes just the, the nature and the dynamic of church can lead us back unintentionally at times into a religious type approach. And whenever we take a religious type approach, even to our faith, it's going to prevent us from experiencing the fullness of the real Jesus in our lives. In other words, religion fails us in letting us find and follow the real Jesus. And the concern about religion is what the Apostle Paul had on mind, in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 2. And if you want to use one of the blue Bibles that we provide for you here in the Pewbacks, it's found on page 1709, page 1709 of those blue Bibles. And for those of you that are joining us online, great to have you with us as always. I do hope that you'll have uh, scriptures open as well. So please uh, find a copy of the scriptures and open it up to Romans chapter 2. Paul opens Romans chapter 2 in a pretty bold and dramatic fashion. Here are the words that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome and to us. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Well, what are the same things that Paul is referring to here in this passage? Well, the same things, or the such things that he says in verse 2, is referring to a list of sins, a list of behaviors that he gives to us at the end of chapter 1. If you were with us last weekend, Pastor Dale gave a message, and he talked in that message how all of us have a tendency to be given to idolatry. And idolatry just means worshiping anything that isn't God. 
And Dale made the excellent point that anytime we give in to idolatry, what it leads to is immorality. And so Paul is, is telling us that, and he gives us this list, and, and the list at the end of chapter one is kind of like a summary list of probably what we would say is wrong with the world. I mean, it's just this, this, this overwhelming list of all this stuff. I mean, just listen to what he's saying. He's saying at the end of chapter one that they be, become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I mean, this is a list. And Paul is like, he, he gets into chapter two, and he's like, and you do the same thing. And we hear that, and we're like, okay, well, well hold on, Paul. Like, um, I, yeah, all of us are sinners, Nobody's perfect. So like, sure, like we're all kind of guilty of, of stuff that's not right. Except that's not Paul's point. Paul's not speaking generically here. And Paul isn't addressing the general public. Paul is writing to the church. And he's saying the list of those sins, you're guilty of the same things. And at least when I read that, I'm wanting to push back on Paul a little bit. I'm like, well, hold on a minute, Paul. Like, don't, like, like sure, like, I'll give you a couple of things on the list that, that maybe I'm guilty of, but I'm not guilty of all of chapter one. I'm not guilty of this whole thing. Like, don't put that on me, Paul. And the reason that I have that, that initial reaction, the reason that I'm uncomfortable with that is because I have a tendency to take a religious approach to my faith in God. And if you're a little uncomfortable with Paul addressing and saying you're guilty of these same things, maybe you too take a religious approach. See, what the religious approach wants to do, a religious approach to, to really anything in life, says that there is a, that there is a, a list of things that one ought to do and, and one ought not to do. And the religious approach has this concept that those things are on a scale. So a religious approach says, like, there's some, there's some really bad things that you could do. They're like grievous sins that are out there. And then there's kind of this, like, gradient scale. Like, there's some that are, you know, maybe, maybe not, not as bad, but, like, there's still really bad things to do. And then there's kind of, like, this, this whole level of sin that's like, these aren't good for you, and you really should avoid them, you know, but, but like, you know, they're not as bad as this. And then there's, like, the socially acceptable sins. Right, the ones that like kind of everybody does, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a sinner too, right? Because I do this. And, and, and whenever we get a list like this, we instinctively want to kind of put ourselves here. Or if we realize that maybe we're over here, as long as there's somebody else over on this side of me, I'm feeling better about myself because that's what religion does. It's just, it's this religious approach. And listen, the fact that we even have that inclination within us is going to keep us from experiencing the real Jesus. So what's the problem with religion? Well, Paul tells us that religion has failed us, and it's failed us specifically for two reasons. And that's what he gives to us in Romans chapter 2. The first one is this, that religion fails us because it's a judgmental system. And what I mean by that is every religious approach, actually every worldview, has a judgmental system. It judges that there's a right way to be and a wrong way to be, and because there is a judgmental system, what we're going to find is that it, by definition, becomes hypocritical. 
That's a pretty bold statement. But here's, here's what Paul does in his argument. Here, here's, here's the point that he's making. Let, let's pick this up in verse 12. He writes this. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, and when Paul says Gentiles here, what he's, who he's referring to is anyone who's, who's not Jewish, but it's kind of like a catch-all phrase in his time for people that were godless. Now, now don't think godless like atheists, they didn't have any faith or any religion, uh, they were pagans. So they believed in a pantheon of gods, but they didn't believe in the God of Scripture, Yahweh God, the God who's revealed himself to us. So, so they're godless, they don't have access to, to God's law, and that, that's who he's referring to. So he says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Here's, here's Paul's point. He's saying this religious approach applies to everybody. That was true in his day, Jew and Gentile alike, and it's true in our day. That regardless of what religion you may follow, all of us have a religious approach to life. Meaning, we have a judgment that there's a right way to be and a wrong way to be. And there's rewards for being the right way, and there's consequences for being the wrong way. That this is true of every religious belief. So if you believe in Hinduism, for instance, you believe that the soul is progressing through cycles of life and death and suffering, and the goal of the soul is to eventually uh, get out of that cycle. And you do that by, by improving or, or, or being better at, at each different stage of the cycle. So this is the idea of reincarnation. And that eventually, if you can get to a spot where, where you can get free of that cycle, and the principles of karma kind of help to govern that whole process. But there's a right way to be and a wrong way to be. If, if you're Buddhist, you have a belief system that there's a better way of thinking and a worse way of thinking. And if you can just think better, that eventually it will lead you to a place of achieving enlightenment and you can experience nirvana. If you're Muslim, you believe that there is a day of judgment that is going to come. And you believe that there's a, a right way to be a good Muslim and there, there's a, a wrong way to, 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 to be Muslim or to not be a, a believer. And you believe that at one day that you're going to be judged and if, if, the, if the good things that you have done outweigh the bad, then you're going to be accepted. That, that's actually very similar to nominal Christianity. And when I say nominal Christianity, I do not mean finding and following the real Jesus. I mean kind of this cultural Christianity that many of us in the West have. We have kind of this idea that God is just going to say, hey, if, as long as you're kind of better than average, or as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're going to be in. So we all have this kind of framework of this judgmental system. Even people who are non-religious have a religious approach to life. Because even those who are non-religious, it doesn't have anything to do with a god or, or a supernatural or supreme being, but they will tell you there's a better way to be human, there's a better way to organize society, and there's a worse way. And they'll tell you that there are, are rewards for us doing things well and there are consequences for us doing things poorly. 
In fact, even in our day right now, there's, there's kind of a secular creed that, that's, that's being established. Maybe some of you have seen these yard signs that are out in front of some homes. It's, it's like these declarative credo-type statements that say, in this home, we believe, and then there's these bold statements, you know, no human is illegal, or love is love, or whatever, whatever they're saying. And that, that's effectively a creed to say, this is the better way, this is the right way to be human, and if you do this, society is better. If you fail to live by that, then there's a consequence, you're going to be canceled which is kind of like our secular version of excommunication. See, all of us, all of us have some sort of a judgmental system, regardless of what it is. And because of that, by definition, that means all of us are hypocritical. Because no one can even keep their own system. This, this happened to me like this past week. So I have, a, I have a, a judgmental system that I have, a judgmental view or approach when it comes to youth sports, all right? I coach my son's baseball team, and I believe there's a better way to coach youth sports and a worse way to coach youth sports. And I believe that coaching sports uh, is a great way to develop character. I, I believe it's a great way to teach hard work and teamwork and respect for the game, respect for authority, like respect for, uh, for, for, for one another, right? That's just what I believe to be true about youth. It's not about winning and losing for me. That's, that's the wrong way to approach it. Uh, so we're playing baseball this, this last week, and uh, our team got creamed by this other team. I mean, it was like two innings in, and this game is over. I mean, it was just hopeless. So middle innings, I mean, the game is just impossibly out of reach. And this other team starts jawing a little bit at our boys. A little bit of trash talk is going on. Starting to rub it in a little bit. Getting a little bit cocky, a little bit arrogant about how much they're up by. And I'm in the field out there kind of coaching on the bases, and I'm hearing this, and it makes me mad. Because this is a violation of what I believe to be true, right? And so after the game, I was sitting with some of our parents and, and coaches, and I was, um, see, how do I say this? I was, uh, I was verbally processing my emotions. Okay, so I'm complaining, right? So I'm complaining about this other team. And um, one of the other coaches who's a good friend of mine and somebody, he's just, he's super wise. I have a lot of respect for him. He was like, yeah, you know, that was happening. But he goes, you know, a couple weeks ago when our team was up big, we were kind of doing the same thing. And I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I was like, no, 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 that was totally different. <laughs> it's totally different because our boys, like they, they're just, they were working hard and like they were starting to have a little bit of success. So they're feeling confident about themselves. They weren't trying to make the other team feel bad. They were just excited for themselves. This other team, they were entitled and they were, they were trying to rub it in. And like these boys are just mean spirited. They're 12 and 13 years old. So I get in the car and I'm like, why am I, like what's going on with me that that's, I'm being a hypocrite. I'm, I'm being hypocritical. So where does that come from? Well, it comes from our own nature because whenever there's a judgmental system, listen, here's what happens. We become very objective about how other people aren't living up to the standard. But when it comes to ourself, we know too much. We know too much because we know our emotions, we know our thoughts, we know our intent, we know the people involved. We, we, we might think we know our own motivations, and so because of that, we're very subjective when it comes to ourselves. 
And so we can't even possibly keep our own set of standards. Which, by the way, if somebody ever gives you some pushback about following Jesus or about the church or about Christianity, if they ever come to you and they're like, listen, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because they're just a bunch of hypocrites. That is not a closed door. It's actually a great jumping off point for a conversation. You can say, hey, tell you what, that's true. Christians are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. But can you find one person who isn't a hypocrite? Because from what I've seen, none of us keep our own standards. The only difference is in Christianity, they acknowledge it. And the real Jesus has a solution for it. And it's not religion. See, the religious approach fails us because we can't even keep our own standard. And by definition, that makes us hypocritical. But it gets worse. And this is the second failure of religion, is that religion can't fix what is actually wrong. And Paul brings this to a head as he continues in his argument with verse 16. Here's what he says. Paul says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now, Paul says there is a day coming when we will face judgment. And what will be judged will not just be the actions and the behaviors that we've done that are visible to everybody else, but part of how we're gonna be judged is on our secrets, on those things that nobody else knows. The things that you've done that no one else knows you did. Or more importantly, the things that are in your heart that you thought that nobody else knows that you thought. That's what's going to be judged. And Paul says that Jesus is the one who's going to be making that judgment. Now, Jesus has a standard, and we're going to get into this in just a minute. But the reality is, and we just already said this, Jesus could, could actually not even use his standard. Jesus could just use ours. He could still be a perfect judge and say, you pick the standard, I'll compare you to it, and none of us would be able to hold up. Because we've already said we can't even keep our own standard, but listen, God does have a standard. And it's called the law. And and oftentimes in, in some kind of superficial visions of Christianity, we're like, oh yeah, the law, that's the old thing that's bad, we don't have to worry about it anymore. But but that's not exactly what Jesus has to say about the law. So if Jesus is the one who's going to be the judge, what does he have to say about the law? Well, he talks about this in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount is recorded. I just want to read to you a passage. These are the words of Jesus where he talks about the fulfillment of the law. Here's the words of Jesus, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, They were like the best people you knew. Unless they surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus, what do you mean by that? 
Well, Jesus goes on to explain. He says, well, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. We're like, okay, we're, we're in. That makes sense. That, that's, a, that's a good standard. But I tell you, Jesus goes on to say, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So, so Jesus is saying, hey, the, the law that you thought was here, that Paul is already saying you can't keep even that, Jesus says, actually, it's, the standard isn't here, it, it's up here. But Jesus isn't done yet. He says, again, I tell you, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that's an Aramaic term that means you're a nobody, you're empty-headed. Anyone who says raka is answerable to court. It's up here. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. He just keeps leveling up the standard. What is, what is Jesus saying about this? Because if that's true, who can possibly be accepted? Well, the point that Jesus is making is the same point that the Apostle Paul is making in those first few verses of chapter 2, where he says we're guilty of the same things. Here's what Jesus means by that. He, he mentions murder. Murder is, is taking someone else's life, but when you murder someone, essentially what you're saying is you're saying, I, I don't value your life. In fact, I have so little value for your life, I think that I'm justified and capable to take your life so that you can no longer have it because it's so meaningless to me. And not only is that an act of violence and, and is that a great offense against the person, it's a great offense against God who created that person in his image. You're saying, God, I don't have any value for what you created. Well, Jesus is saying, listen, if you go to somebody and you say to them, hey, you're a nobody. Like, I don't care what you think about me. You're a nobody. You're dead to me. Like, you're meaning, I don't care what you think. I don't care about you. He's saying that attitude, raka, it, it comes from the same heart. Because essentially you're saying, I don't value who you are. I don't value your life. I don't value what God has made in his own image. And Jesus is telling us the heart condition of that is the same heart condition. Yeah, the behavior and the expression might be different, but it comes from the same place, which means all of us are guilty of everything that Paul lists there in Romans chapter 1. We're all under the same judgment. And any religious approach can never solve that. That's why religion fails us. So what's the solution? Well, Paul goes on in the passage in Romans chapter 2 to give us the solution by talking with us about circumcision, which you probably weren't expecting. <laughs> but when you understand it, it makes perfect sense. Circumcision was instituted by God with Abraham back in the ancient Near East. And circumcision is the act of removing a piece of flesh. And God told Abraham, this is going to be the sign that you are in a covenant relationship with me as you and all of your male descendants will be circumcised. And it's deeply symbolic. And the symbolism is found in where it comes in the story. See, right before God instituted circumcision as the sign of the covenant, 
Abraham and his wife Sarah tried on their own to bring about God's promise of their own effort. Abraham and, and Sarah were old and uh, getting up there in age, and yet God had given this, them this amazing promise that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that God was going to make them into a great nation, but they don't have any children. And so as they continue to get older and well past childbirthing age, they decide that, hey, the window on this opportunity is probably closing. And because they haven't seen God fulfill his promise yet, they decide to take matters into their own hands, and Sarah and Abraham can struck the plan to essentially give one of the household servants who was under the responsibility of Sarah to Abraham, and he has a child, a son, with her. And so Abraham says, okay, well now the promise can be fulfilled, and God comes to them and he says, no, 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 this was not how this is gonna go. I told you that I would bring about this by my own hand, my own doing, my own miraculous intervention in your life, not based on your own efforts. And so to remind you, Abraham, and to remind all of your descendants that my promises get fulfilled by me and not your own efforts, you're going to be circumcised. And what you're going to do is you're going to cut off a piece of flesh to say and to symbolize that there is a sinful part of all of us that wants to try to work out God's promises on our own effort, and that part of our life needs to get cut off. And that we need to wait for God's promise, not our own effort. And from Abraham onward, all of his descendants, they were all circumcised, and yet none of them were ever able to fully complete the law. And when God instituted circumcision, he said, if anybody isn't circumcised, may they be cut off from my presence. So God took this really seriously because it was this symbolic act that actually was going to eventually point us to Jesus. Because Jesus comes, and Jesus is different from all the rest of Abraham's descendants. Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. And for some of you with your own religious background and tradition, that might be a really difficult concept for you to understand, but it is essential for us to understand. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he could do what no other human being was ever able to do. Listen, Jesus was the only human who was never hypocritical. Jesus was the only human who was ever able to perfectly keep the law. Not just the visible behavior, but even in the heart. And his reward for perfectly keeping the law was that he fell under the curse and was cut off from God's presence. And he did that when he died on the cross to take on the punishment and the consequence of our sinfulness. And what Paul is is telling us here is that what we need is not physical circumcision to be saved, not a religious activity. What we need is a spiritual circumcision. That what we need is we need our heart to be circumcised. That's what he says this at the end of chapter two. He says a person is not a Jew who is A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Paul's saying we need a circumcision of our heart by God's own Spirit, which is actually one of the reasons that circumcision is no longer the defining symbol of somebody who's a faithful follower of God or Jesus now, it's, it's now baptism. 
Because in baptism, the whole story is lived out. See, in baptism, somebody goes underneath the water and they come back up out of the water. When they go under the water, what they're saying is they're saying, I identify with the death that Jesus died on the cross. Just as Jesus literally died on that cross to take on the punishment or the consequences for my sin, so I am now considering myself my own desires, my own efforts, uh, my own, my, my own uh, p- passions, the things that I want to pursue, all of that I'm considering that to be dead as well. In other words, our heart has now been circumcised. The heart that wants to try to do this on our own has been cut away. But just as Jesus didn't stay dead, he was risen from the grave, so we don't stay under the water in baptism, we come up out of the water saying that we also identify with the resurrection that Jesus, when he was risen to new life, has given us now his own spirit that has come and lived and become, and dwells in our body, our soul. But God's spirit is now within us. And that is the, the significant moment that is very anti-religion, but is called regeneration. It's just a fancy theological term to mean we've been given new life. Not by our own effort, but by God's own spirit. And the significance of this is, is massive for us as followers of Jesus. Because it's a whole new way of being. So what this means for us, practically speaking, is it means that we need to repent of our own efforts and our own attitudes and instead embrace the real Jesus. Which is actually the point that Paul is getting at in uh, chapter two, verse four, when he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So the whole reason of all of this is so that we would come to a point where we know we need to repent. And that's the the first thing that we need to do with this message is we have to repent not only of our specific sin, but of the whole approaching God through our own effort and our own religion. Repent just means to turn and go a new way. The invitation that Jesus gives to us is to repent. And so for those of you that may be listening to this message or you're here, if you've never done that, never repented, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior in terms of what he has done for you and put your hope in him, the next weekend is really important for you to be here. Because the message next weekend is all about how do we become a follower of Jesus? What does that mean to accept Jesus into our lives? What what does that look like? How do we do that? And what happens when that occurs? So so be here next weekend or listen next weekend so you can can catch up with what that means because that's, that's a really important step for you. But this week is about those of us who are faithful followers of Jesus. Because here's the concern that that I have. Oftentimes we hear a message like this and we're like, okay, so now I kind of get it. So Jesus didn't come to replace the law. Uh, What he did is he came to fulfill the law. So he perfectly keeps the law. So he's kept it for me. He's died my death. So now I get acceptable to God and I get to, to go into heaven, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. So there we go. And then what we do is we know that we kind of have like this, this eternal fire insurance that we're not going to end up in hell, but we go right back in to a religious approach to our relationship with God. And we totally miss the significance of the transformation that Jesus wants to do in our life right now. Because what we do is we fall into a cycle where we repent of our sin, but because we're still trying to do this on our own effort, we then start repeating those same sins. 
And we never get out of this cycle. And some of us, listen, are spiritually exhausted because we know we have salvation, but if you look at how we're living our life, we're, we're just on this religious hamster wheel and we're not getting anywhere and we're like, what is wrong? And what's wrong is that we're missing the real Jesus because we're still trying to do it on our own effort. So what's, what's different? What's the call to, to, to be different? Well, what it is, is it certainly is to repent of our sin, but it's to then do something different. It's to reflect, not on ourselves, but to reflect on Jesus. Because he's the one who perfectly keeps the law. So here's what I mean by this. I, I struggle with worry. It's just, it's one of the areas of sin in my life that I've wrestled with for years. I'm a, I'm a worrier. And I know that when I worry about things, that, that God in scripture tells us that we are people who should not worry. And so because I, I'm worrying about something and I know God says not to worry, I then start worrying about worrying. <laughs> right? And so I'm worrying about worrying and that makes me even more worried and I just, it's like this whole cycle of worry. Well, how do you get out of that? How do you stop worrying? Especially if you're worrying about worrying. You, you don't get out of it by just trying super hard to not worry. Just like you don't get out of sin by trying super hard not to sin. What you do is you certainly acknowledge it and repent, but then reflect on Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus perfectly kept the law, which means Jesus never worried. Jesus had a lot of things he could worry about, but he never worried. How did Jesus never worry? He never worried because he had total faith and trust in his heavenly father. Jesus knew his heavenly father so well that he knew his heavenly father was always in control of everything. And he knew that his heavenly father loved him completely. And he knew that his heavenly father would never leave him. And so he knew, I don't have anything to worry about because he knew his heavenly father. Okay, so if, if, I, if I reflect, that's how Jesus lived this. Here's the third thing that I can do. I can replace. I can replace my own effort with what Jesus has already done. Because what God's word tells us is that when God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, it's the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the same spirit of Jesus that perfectly keeps the law is now resident in my life. Which means if I stop trying to do it myself and I just trust the spirit of God that he's already given to me, I can now live a whole new way. Not by my own effort, but by God's spirit. Folks, that is a very non-religious way to live your life. But it is the real Jesus. And when we live that way, it brings real transformation to our lives. Pray for us. Father, we are tempted to do things our own way. And Lord, every one of those efforts is going to come up short. Father, we, we desperately want to have and experience the life that you've promised for us. But Father, so often we are impatient. And Father, so often we are prideful. 
And we think that we can only enjoy all that you have to offer if we have somehow earned it ourselves. And Lord, all we're doing is wearing ourselves out. Father, I pray that we would recognize that the real Jesus came to save us, yes, from hell, but also from ourselves and our own religious efforts. And Father, I pray for us as your people that we may be known, Lord, that we may experience the fullness of the real you, and that our lives would become categorically different because we stop trying to do things on our own strength and our own power, and Father, we just trusted in your gracious Holy Spirit, which you have given to us. And so, Father, may you teach us how we can follow your Spirit and thereby live out the life that you have called us to live. Father, the law no longer condemns us because Jesus has fulfilled it. But the law is not bad. Father, your law points us and shows us how perfectly Jesus lived his life. And so, Father, I pray that we may reflect long and be inspired and drawn toward your spirit changing us to become ever more like your son, Jesus. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.